Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. Hey, Mountain Park Online Family, House Church Families, it is great to be with you again. If uh, I've never had the pleasure of meeting you in person, my name is Andrew and I'm one of the pastors at Mountain Park Church. We are just honored to be able to to walk with you and process with you uh, through everything that's going on in your life these days. And I just want to, again, remind you, if you need anything um, at all, uh, just reach out to us. We are here. We're all on this yo-yo string uh, called life right now, which seems like it's like a whiplash yo-yo string, but we're all on it. And uh, if you need anything, you can email me, Andrew, at mp.church or Pastor Brenda. I didn't even ask her if I could say that, but you can email Pastor Brenda. uh, And her email is brenda at mp.church. All right, we're stepping into Ephesians again. And um, we're in the same passage sort of paragraph that we were before. One of the things with Ephesians is like literally Paul just packs so much into uh, condensed paragraphs that it takes a bit of time to even orient yourself to what he's saying and and to try and actually get some of the richness of what he's saying out of it. But we're in Ephesians 4. We're going to read from 11 uh, through to whatever, 16, I think, or something like that. Um, But before we do that, let's just pray together. Uh, So if you would, Don't close your eyes if you're driving, but um, if you would, I'd love to just pray with you. Jesus, we love you, and we humble ourselves before you. We invite you, Holy Spirit, in this moment to search and examine our lives, our hearts. We want you to, um, to test us for any areas of worry or fear, anxiety, Anything that we've thought or said or done, anything we've believed in or relied on, um, anything that we have seen or any place we've been that is opposed to you and your authority, your lordship, uh, we just uh, renounce now in Jesus' name. And um, Father, I just declare my total dependence and need for you uh, in all matters of life, but also um, in approaching this text today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd bring revelation and insight. Father, I ask that you would quicken the spirits of everyone under the sound of my voice right now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's just read this real quick together. I'm going to hold my Bible because I'm getting old. Uh, Ephesians 4. 11. This is what Rochelle does these days. Every time she looks at something, she actually just texted me a picture from Costco. She's trying on sunglasses, but it's hard with a mask, not sunglasses, reading glasses. It's hard to see with a mask what it looks like on your face. Anyway, I told her that I was preaching and she wasn't allowed to text me anymore. (laughs) Um, Yeah, where did I? Okay, Ephesians 4, 11. Starting in verse 11, all right? Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. 
the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord. We're going to kind of be honing in on that. We talked about uh, a bit of that um, last week, but we're going to be honing in on this idea of what it means to be mature in the Lord. And specifically this, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So what in the world is Paul saying? He goes on, uh, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. What Paul is actually talking about there are not sort of mishaps of uh, just unintentional mishaps of bad theology. He's talking about people in the church who are very intentional about deceiving people or or propagating a theology that's not actually um, doctrinally sound, that's not biblically sound, that's not orthodox, okay, uh, in terms of its scope and rightness. So what Paul is saying is that he understands that people are going to intentionally try to twist and pervert the meaning of Scripture, uh, the truth of God's Word, and he's warning them about that, that actually um, maturity spiritually, spiritual maturity, and we're going to talk a bit more about that next week, spiritual maturity is a guard against that, all right? I think one um, scholar I was reading on this said, like, spiritual maturity or attaining to the fullness of maturity in Christ is, uh, you know, the rampart that the, the waves of uh, deceit and trickery and uh, sort of what Paul is talking about here, it's, it's the rampart that those waves break against. I just did a horrible job of quoting whoever that was. But um, so Paul is talking about intentional uh, twisting of Scripture here. Um, and people that use very clever and seemingly very intellectual um, academic ways of doing that, all right? So these are people that also seem like they're way smarter than the average Joe, and uh, they're able to, uh, you know, kind of slice and dice things from this sort of higher learned academic standpoint, but they're intentionally twisting what the truth of Scripture just plainly teaches. All right, we'll move on. Um, so then he says, uh, you know, we'll no, no longer be blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. There's a lot of that going on right now in our culture, in our uh, sort of especially North American church culture, theological culture. There's a lot of this taking place. People are intentionally deconstructing the truth or uh, an orthodox understanding of Scripture and, and twisting it to say things that I don't believe God's heart ever intended to say. Paul goes on to say, 
Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. So again, Paul is talking about a movement toward a growth toward maturity, becoming more and more like Christ. So the goal of our lives, the goal of our spiritual life is Christ-likeness. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, today and also next week. Who is the head of his body, the church? He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. All right. So again, context. Paul is contextually here. We've got to go back to uh, verse one. He's talking really about um, the calling of God that you and I have on our lives individually, but also the calling of God on the church as a corporate uh, body. All right. So that's what we need to understand. Paul is talking about and admonishing us to live worthy of the calling of God on our lives individually and the calling of God for his bride, the church. What he highlights in here is that uh, living into the fullness of God's purpose for your life, the fullness of God's purpose for the church, the fullness of his supernatural and divine calling for your life, living into that will require that you grow in verse 15, in every way more and more like Christ, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ, verse 13. So Paul there sets the target. In Galatians, Paul says it this way, Galatians 4.19, my children, I am against suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. Okay, so here's where we get this idea of spiritual formation. And um, as a church, we believe that God is calling us to be formed in Christ, all right? So there's a biblical formation into the character and likeness of Christ that we are called to. In the NLT version of Hebrew or Galatians 4.19, um, they word it this way, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again, and they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your life. Okay, so that word formed is morpho, all right? It's where we get metamorphosis from, but that word in the Greek morpho is to give shape, to form, to build, or be formed. In the picture that Paul is giving us from Galatians 4.19 is one of an embryo being shaped and growing and developing until the point where it's ready to, uh, uh, you know, there's a baby that's ready to be birthed and born out into the world. And in the same way, Paul is saying that the, um, the, the road of spiritual maturity is one of continual growth into the likeness of Christ. All right, Robert Mulholland Jr. says this, about this, um, this idea of formation, being formed, it is being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. Dallas Willard characterizes it this way. It is the spirit-driven process of forming the inner world of the human self in such a way that it becomes like the inner being of Christ himself. So we're not just forming ourselves 
um, around the words of Jesus. We're not just paying attention to what he said. We're paying attention to how he lived, all right? Here's an interesting thought. You know, the, the gospel scholars believe that the, the proper category, the proper genre for writing for the gospels is biographic. They're, they're really uh, literally ancient biographies of Jesus' life. There is relatively little direct teaching from Jesus in the Gospels compared to the biographical narrative content of his life. I think part of the reason for that in, in inspiring the writers to write, I think the Holy Spirit was getting at, l- listen, we're not just trying to learn the words of Jesus. We need to pay attention to the life of Jesus, to how he lived, all right? So attaining to or, or being developed and growing to that full and complete standard of Christ is not just listening to what he said, Of course, that's very important. It's not only listening to what he said, though. It's actually recognizing and living the way that he lived, carrying ourselves the way he carried himself. So Paul is saying this is kind of like what's all encompassed in this idea of um, living to the full and complete standard of Christ in verse 13, and in every way more and more like Christ in verse 15. So uh, I just want to break this down a little bit because this is not, we run into a few ditches. We all do, um, if we're honest. We run into a few ditches with this when we're thinking of Christ or what the fullness of Christ means to us. We can run into these ideological ditches that are based on one uh, attribute of Christ or one character set, character trait set of Christ alone that actually becomes destructive for us. And we all, we have different personalities. God has wired us all differently. And we all uniquely emphasize without even thinking about it. We we come to the, the text, we come to scripture with a deeply ingrained, built-in presuppositions. And anyone that tells you that they read scripture completely void of presuppositions is a liar. We all have them. They're ingrained in us. We all have a way of viewing what we would consider to be the fullness of Christ. And one of the dangers that we can run into is that we develop an ideology of Christ that's based on uh, one piece of the pie of his character or what he said or did. And I just want to cover two kind of opposing views just to give you an illustration and example. So So side number one is the ideology that some people build of the grace, acceptance, tolerance, and love of Jesus, all right? So they've they've fashioned an image of Christ, or what they would see would be the fullness of Christ, this ideology of his grace, acceptance, tolerance, and love. These people focus on the behavior of Jesus as he interacts with those around him. So they're, when they read the Gospels, when they read the Scriptures, they're looking at the behavior of Jesus, and they are building an ideological image of Jesus primarily rooted in his behavior. So Jesus did walk in the full love and grace 
of God, but Jesus walked in the full truth of God, all right? And Jesus had no tolerance for sin. Jesus had zero tolerance for sin. For Jesus, the way that he expressed himself, the way that he interacted with people, the way that he carried himself, the way that he confronted people, yes, um, it was through grace and peace and gentleness. These are the, the character traits that God calls us to, but those weren't a license for Jesus to accept or develop a tolerant view of sin. The truth is that we're called to live under the lordship of Jesus and his example of the fear of the Lord and a standard for life that is ruthless in its treatment of the tolerance of sin. All right, so some people look at Jesus and the, the, their idea of the fullness of Christ is having this measure of grace that leads to tolerance of sin, that leads to an excusing of sin, that leads to a, a lowering of the threshold of what God would require or demand of us. But Jesus actually had a ruthless treatment for sin in his life, not only in outward actions, but even more significantly in the motives, intentions, attitudes, and desires of the heart. Listen to how Jesus kind of sets the bar for sin in our lives, all right? I'm going to turn with you in Matthew chapter 5, all right? So if you want to turn a few books over, Matthew 5, 21 and 22, all right? Jesus is teaching about anger. He says this, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment, right? So Jesus is talking about action here. If you follow through with this, uh, there's a problem. But I say to you, th these are haunting words from Jesus. I'm just gonna read it off my iPad. But I say to you, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, Jesus. Wait a minute. What are you, what are you probing at here? Jesus is moving beyond the external actions and manifestations into an interior heart issue. The very place that, that, uh, that, that, that murderous anger and rage was formed in someone's heart. Even if you're angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. Then he takes it further. Even if you call someone an idiot, <laughs> guilty, um, you are in, I call myself that a lot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in, listen to this. If you curse someone, not even externally, but curse them in your heart. You are in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus goes on. You have heard that the commandment says you must not commit adultery. We're still in chapter five of Matthew. All right? So don't cheat on your spouse. That's pretty clear. Then Jesus says, you know, that used to be the threshold but there's a new threshold for sin in our lives. He says, I say, anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
you're violating God's principles in your heart. You haven't even done anything yet. You may not have even said anything. You haven't acted out on your lust even. You you haven't even turned the computer on to look at pornography yet. You haven't even done that. But because of what's taking place in your interior life, in your heart, there's sin happening. Look at Jesus's remedy all right, and this is not a literal thing. This is, but this is just Jesus's way, in almost a parabolic way. Jesus saying, "This is how you are to be ruthless with sin going on in the interior of your life, not not to mention the exterior." This is what Jesus is saying. This is how deadly serious he is. So, if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. Look, if you're struggling with lust or you're struggling with an addiction to pornography, do whatever you have to do to remove the temptation from you. Uh, You know, uh, get an accountability software on your laptop or your iPad. Cancel your cable. Cut your Netflix uh, subscription. Um, you know, uh, put some extreme accountability measures in place with your Xboxes and Playstations and these places that you go to to sin. Jesus is saying, look, stop excusing. Stop playing around with it. Stop playing nice with it. Cut it out. (laughs) It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell And if your hand, even your stronger hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. This is the counter to that ideological view of Jesus as just this sort of uh, gentle, peace-loving, self-affirming, desire-affirming person in your life. Whatever your heart wants, you just go for it. I love you. I have grace for you. Yes, Jesus loves you immeasurably more than you could ever imagine. Yes, his grace is sufficient for you, but that's not an excuse to build this ideological understanding of him that is tolerant of sin that uh, is really at the root of how people have been deconstructing orthodoxy, a biblical, uh, a godly understanding of Scripture to allow for immorality. That's not the trajectory that God is setting in Scripture. So our problem is that we have an ideology of love and grace, which has led us to deconstruct what's actually true about sin. And the ruthless uh, approach that Jesus had to sin in the interior life, let alone what was happening outside. It's led some to deconstruct this idea that God has called us to lead a holy and set-apart life for him. It's led some to deconstruct this idea that God has called us to die to ourselves, to crucify our desires and our flesh. It's led led some to diminish and devalue Jesus' call 
to us when he said, you know, if anybody wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This ideology of Jesus as being love and grace and tolerance, which he, I wouldn't say the Bible never uses tolerance, but Jesus is love and grace, but he's also truth. And so we can't create this picture of Jesus only out of one facet of his character. We create an idolatry then of self and desire. And this is an idolatry that is at the heart, especially of our Western culture. Self and desire for self is, if not the, one of the gods one of the controlling demonic spirits of our age. Whatever you feel about yourself is right. Whatever you want to do is right. Whatever's good for you is right. Whatever makes you happy is right. Whatever brings you fulfillment in the moment is right. Whatever satisfies whatever desire and craving that you have is right. And that's an idolatry of self and desire. In Matthew 5, 19, Jesus said this, from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. Yes, Jesus walked with gentleness and grace and love. Yes, when we look at the gospels again, we don't only look at what he said, we look at how he lived. And Jesus demonstrated these character traits. He walked in the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, he did. But Jesus was also ruthless in his view and treatment of sin. Jesus was not cozying up to sin. He wasn't excusing it in his life or in anyone else's life. And he sets the bar in the New Testament, even higher than it was previous to that. All right, the second side, the flip side, These are this is a whole other set of people who have an idea or an ideology, like I've just been talking about, of the holiness and purity of Jesus, of the, the cost of discipleship and all of this. They have an ideology of that, and they focus on the issues of sin and Jesus's theological teaching about it in Scripture. So they're not really looking at how he lived and how he conducted his life and how he interacted with people. They're looking at what he said, all right, which is what we need to do as well. But they represent the opposite side of the spectrum. So they would agree that he was ruthless in his attitude and approach to sin, to the devil and the kingdom of darkness. Jesus didn't make pet friends with sin. In fact, he said, you know, um, the Bible says in 1 John 3, 8, Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. He didn't come to uh, find good, good, you know, good redeemable parts of the kingdom of darkness. He came to destroy it. But Jesus always interacted with grace and truth. And so often these people are the, 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 the biblical image that comes to mind are the, the people that uh, love the story of Jesus going into the temple and overturning the tables in the temple and and creating this big scene because the Bible says that he had zeal for his father's house. He was passionate about uh, his holiness and he was passionate about being set apart. And yes, 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 Jesus was passionate about these things. 
But often the people on this side of the ideological spectrum make excuses for their abhorrent behavior, for the belittling online. I read some of your stuff every week almost when it comes up on my Facebook feed, the the belittling and, and, and degrading way that these people speak to people and justify it under this guise of I'm just calling out sin or I'm calling out doctrinal error in you. There's a whole segment of the body of Christ that's taking it upon themselves to call out the error in everyone else. And often when they're doing that, they're violating the very scripture they uphold because of how they engage and interact with people, because of their lack of gentleness and grace, because they demean and devalue the people that are across from the made in the image of God, because they aren't exercising self-control or the fruit of the spirit. They are actually um, disregarding and sinning against the very word of God that they're holding up, you know, to this elevated position. We need to hold the word of God very high. But Jesus lived as the lion and the lamb. And we've talked about this before. You can go into Revelation chapter 5 and, and get this. Jesus operated like a lion in the spiritual realm with relation to sin, the kingdom of darkness, his own flesh, and the you know, the spirit, the spirits of the age, the demonic forces at play on the earth. He, he walked like a lion. A ferocious lion. Jesus was the lion of Judah. But as he interacted with people, he carried the character traits for the most part of a lamb. And some of you will say, well, you look how he talked to the religious leaders and the scribes and scholars. And yes, Jesus spoke harshly to them, but that was a specific group of people that he was confronting. Listen to what Jesus, the same Jesus that said, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, you got to cut it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, you got to cut it off. This is what Jesus says in relation to how we are to express and carry truth in our life. You have heard that the law says, this is Matthew 5, the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, don't resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat also. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Jesus goes on to say, you have heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And that way you'll be acting as true children of your father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you only love those who love you, what reward is there for you in that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even the pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. Matthew 7. One to five, don't judge others and you will not be judged. 
for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you, me, will be judged. Jesus goes on to say, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of both the log in your own eye. Uh, Sorry, first get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your own. Here's the problem again. An isolated focus on one feature set or facet of Jesus's character of life will lead us to make one thing the main thing. It will lead us to, to ditches on either side of this calling of Paul's for us to live um, and grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. It will lead us into ditches in our call to be formed into the nature of Christ, into the image of Christ. This particular problem and this particular focus will lead us to call out sin and error in others while excusing ourselves from our own sin as we cut them down and speak uh, derogatorily to them and use harsh words and demean them and all kinds of other things. This happens in the body of Christ. It's tragic. I've done this. And I've had this done to me. We can't uphold one virtue of Jesus or one set of character traits at the expense of what it means to grow up into the fullness of Christ and growing up into the fullness of Christ, being formed into maturity, being spiritually formed into maturity requires that we grow not only in our knowledge and understanding, yes, we need to grow in right doctrine. Next week, we're gonna talk actually specifically about the barriers to spiritual maturity that Paul is sort of either intimating at or speaking directly against. But uh, being formed into Christ-likeness requires that we not only know what's true, but that we, and we not only do and live what's right, that actually our interior life must be formed first. Jesus' first call to the disciples was, come follow me, come be with me, and become like me, and then do what I did. Our problem is that, you know, um, often in our spiritual life, we, we, we have a profound encounter with God or we, we surrender our lives to Jesus and then we start doing a whole bunch of things for him. Like that's all that he's called us to. And meanwhile, what we're doing for him is actually coming out of areas of our heart and our life that have not been shaped and formed by him that is leading to further hurt and wounding and destruction. And it's devaluing and devalidating the gospel of the kingdom of God in our lives because it's coming with so much dysfunction and hurt and baggage and for us to be formed into the fullness of Christ. 
We have to not only take a look at how we live and what we do, but what's taking place in the interior of our life. So how do we do that? I just want to leave you with a simple thought. As a church, we've been in this sort of sort of slow pivoting season, and we've been doing these group experiences for weeks now, and they've been phenomenal, groups of 10 here at the church in person. And our desire has been... Um, to step into some of the actual life practices of Jesus. Again, um, we have this disconnected thinking in our lives often that, you know, sure, okay, God calls us to conform to the likeness of Christ. Paul says that we need to be formed in the image of God, and and, um, we think that somehow that's an automatic process that happens. It's not. And so we want the, the, you know, the life of Jesus. We want the, the life that we see of the apostles and the great men and women of faith that we find in Scripture. We want that, but we, we're, we refuse to actually do what they did. We refuse to discipline ourselves and engage in the spiritual practices for the kind of life that God is calling us to, that actually are the vehicles of maturity and growth. Maturity in coming into the full and complete stature of Christ does not happen by, um, you know, just simply living and a maturation of years. You could have, you know, accepted Christ into your life 40 years ago and literally still be, uh, you know, barely past that infant stage in your spiritual life. Actually, in fact, I, I think most of us, if we're going to be honest, are still in diapers. <laughs> think about that. But what we need to do, and I want to leave this with you, we've been doing this in our groups. We've been taking time. Um, and adding intentional practices for our life in prayer, listening for God's conviction, allowing him to search us and to know us, Psalm 139, sitting before him in humility and opening our lives up to him in that way through prayer. We've been sitting with scripture, meditating on it, reading it, chewing on it, uh, uh, sitting there in silence and allowing God the space to speak and to convict and to provoke us, allowing the Holy Spirit to bring illumination to his word in our life. Well, I want to say that the scriptures must be our greatest desire. We're going to talk about other practices as we go, but I just want to point this out, that scripture must become our greatest desire, not only to read it occasionally, we need to love it the way that Jesus did. We need to love it the way that King David did. And loving scripture doesn't come from just reading it. Loving scripture doesn't even just come from reading it and knowing it. Loving scripture comes from reading it, knowing it, and obeying it. And this is the part we have trouble with. We must allow ourselves to be shaped by scripture not just to sit over scripture with the idea that we are going to somehow intellectually master it. That's fine. That's a, that's a, we, we need to apply our full mind and intellect to it. Yes, we do. And I fully affirm that and value that. I try to do that in my own life. But we must not just approach scripture as something 
to be mastered, as information to be ingested. We must approach Scripture with a humility to allow what it says to shape our lives, our attitudes, our thinking, our behaving, our believing, and our doing. So then this way, we must allow Scripture to form us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we yield ourselves not only to know it, but to do what it says. In John 14, 6, this is just a practical practical example as we kind of land the plane here. John 14, 6, all right, Jesus said this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. John 14, 6 is not only doctrinal and theological truth. It is those things. But John 14, 6 is not only doctrinal truth and theological truth to just memorize. John 14, 6 is doctrinal truth, theological truth to know and then to live. See, what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the way, he's saying to us and The Spirit is saying to us, is communicating to us through this word, not just the truth that he's the way, but that our call is to live and obey Jesus as the way for our life. So here's where the application comes, and here's where we need to move from uh, knowing and ingesting information to obeying and living. This is where Jesus as being the way requires us to allow him to set the direction for our values, the directions for our life and the pace of our life. If Jesus is the way, then he must be the one that we defer to for leadership in our life. You can say out of your mouth, Jesus is the way, but then in reality, not actually live, surrendered to the leadership of Jesus in your everyday decision-making, surrendering to the leadership of Jesus in what you want to do today or what you are working toward or what you are trying to build up and accumulate and work toward. If Jesus is the way, it's not just a, a, a theological or abstract idea or truth, in order for us to fully lean into this, he must be the way that we allow to lead us in our decision-making and in our life. Is Jesus leading your decision-making? When was the last time you sat in prayer and invited Jesus to bring to mind any areas of your life that are Uh, where you are harboring control, where you are setting the agenda, where you're setting the pace, where you're setting the directions based on what you want. If Jesus is the way, we must be willing to take this scripture and this truth and sit with it, agonize over it, inviting the Holy Spirit to bring to mind, to speak to us and reveal to us any ways in our life in which we are not allowing Jesus to set the direction or the pace. It's a call to accept Jesus as the truth, not your truth, not my truth, not the truth of an ideological sort of uh, 
movement and culture, not the truth of what, you know, our the New York Times says or BuzzFeed or CNN or CBC News. Loving scripture and allowing it to shape and form our lives moves past simply saying Jesus is the truth to actually accepting him as the truth and allowing Jesus to define what is true, not the devil or our culture or our own desires. You are not the arbiter of truth and I am not. There is no your truth and my truth. He is the truth but it requires us to live actively surrendered to his truth, approaching the scripture with a a heart of humility that doesn't define for scripture what it must say based on my life circumstances and how I wanna live. Number three, it's a call to adopt the whole life or character of Jesus. Again, not only reading what Jesus said and spoke, but living the way he lived, embracing the practices of his spiritual life. Jesus withdrawing into places uh, for solitude, extended periods of prayer and fasting, silence, solitude, studying and meditating on scripture. Amongst other things, these were the practices of the life of Jesus. Jesus is not just the way, the truth, and the life as some abstract doctrinal statement of truth, even though it is true. We need to combine what is true about it with how we allow Scripture to form us into the shape and the fullness of Christ in our life. I want to leave you with this. We're just about done. Thank you for hanging in there with me. Revelation 3.20. We often quote this in, in out of context. We quote it as something Jesus was saying to unbelievers. But Jesus said, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Jesus in this context was addressing Christians who had shut God out of their lives, who believed um, in truth, who maybe even agreed with what was true about Jesus, but actually were no longer living for Jesus in the interior places of their life or through their actions. These were people that had begun to shut the door to Jesus in certain areas of their Life. The question you and I have as we look at John 14, 6 and Revelation 3, 20 is, are we allowing Jesus to actually be the way? Are we deferring to his leadership in our life? Are we rejecting or living under him as the truth, the one who defines what is true and what is not for us? And are we living with his leadership and his example, his model as the way, the character and the life of Jesus. Again, Galatians 4.19, Paul says, I'm suffering labor pains for for you until Christ is formed in you. We all have many areas of our life, many doors, whether we're consciously aware of it or not. Some of us have been shutting doors subconsciously because of pain and wounding and hurt, or we've shut doors because 
um, of the voice of our culture, the spirit of this age, or we've shut doors because, um, you know, of the pressure of relationship around us. We've shut doors because simply we want to, and we want to uh, live into our own desires. And Jesus is saying, would you be willing to open up the doors of your life again, not just in what you read and understand and are informed by in scripture, but in how you allow me to lead and transform your life. We need to come back to scripture as our greatest desire. And scripture will never be your greatest desire if you only read it for information or if you only read it to be able to quote a few verses for doctrine. We should do that. But scripture will never be your greatest desire if that is the end. That's not how Jesus read scripture. That's not how um, scripture was intended to be read only. Scripture will become your greatest desire when you allow it to shape and influence how you live. I want to encourage you to take John 14, 6 in this next week. Take John 14, 6. Um, and come back to it a few days in a row. Read it slowly, um, thoughtfully, intentionally, and ask Jesus that question. Are there ways in my life in which you are not the way, the truth, and the life? Jesus, I want my life to be conformed to your word. I want to love your word. I want to love living under your leadership in my life. In this way, we will grow a greater desire for the word of God in our life as we allow it to shape and form us into the fullness of Christ. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.